We are back. This part of the program, we sometimes do obituaries, although we've fallen out of the habit of doing this because we just fell too far behind. we got about 10 people we want to do, so maybe on next week's program we'll make an all-obit show. We've been talking about that. Might just do it. Just want to note briefly in passing, the passing of Geza Vermes. No, I'd never heard of him either, but he passed away at age 88. He was an ex-priest and a translator of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Economist noted that his life's work was a definitive study of the Dead Sea Scrolls, parchments written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic languages, sensationally discovered in caves in Palestine in 1947. They were the rules and holy texts of a first-century Jewish sect, which cast an interesting sidelight on Messianic Judaism and its parallels in early Christianity. Apparently, Mr. Vermes battled a clique of scholars who hogged the manuscripts for decades. He called it the academic scandal of the century. But uh, what this correspondent found quite stunning about this obituary was that it turns out his real fame came from his contention that the historical Jesus, whatever his followers came to believe later, was first and foremost a Jewish holy man, one of many such itinerant preachers and wonder workers, Mr. Vermes wrote a book called Jesus the Jew, which came out in 1973 and was at that time an approach that seemed revolutionary. Noted the economist, in many respects, the two faiths were in a state of mutual ignorance. Jewish scholarship and piety shunned the Christian scriptures, asking what could be gained by studying a self-proclaimed Messiah and his mistaken followers. For their part, Christians all but ignored Jesus's Jewishness. Mr. Vermes somewhat combatively highlighted the neglected common ground. Noted the economist, his fans adored his polyglot erudition, his charm and brains. His seemingly radical argument about Christ's Jewishness became mainstream, at least in Christian theological thinking. In fact, the shorter Oxford Dictionary adopted his definition of Jesus as, quote, a Jewish preacher circa 5 B.C. to circa A.D. 30, regarded by his followers as the Son of God, which replaced the earlier founder of Christianity. I must say this correspondent was stunned, although I guess I shouldn't be, uh, having gone to catechism as a boy, by the notion that Jesus being a Jew somehow got lost in the shuffle of Christianity. Because if you look at it, as I did later in life, you will discover and I hope you do this, dear listener, that um, the Old Testament and New Testament is Jewish literature from start to finish. With the exception of a few names that are famous, like Goliath or the Pharaoh, damn near the whole cast of characters are Jews. And that includes Jesus, St. Peter, St. Paul, the four evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, King David, of course, but uh, just damn near everybody. The Bible is a chronicle written by Jews about Jews. So how is it they forgot the fact that Jesus was Jewish? But uh, speaking of Judaism, uh, as we are, what knocks me out even more was a piece earlier in the same edition of The Economist. This was the May 18th copy. This was the May 18th issue. 
was a book review titled No Joke, Making Jewish Humor by Ruth Wiss. She's apparently a professor of Yiddish literature at Harvard and reveals something that uh, this correspondent finds rather startling, which is that the Jewish reputation for humor is neither universal nor ancient. The connection began with the Enlightenment. But even as late as the late 19th century, London's chief rabbi felt obliged to defend Jews against charges of humorlessness. The Economist says that Jews in Arab countries do not seem to have the same laughing gene. But in the Yiddish-speaking world, and in America and Israel, where many, if not most, Jews descend from Yiddish speakers, the connection between humor and Jews is so strong as to almost be axiomatic. Again, I'm quoting the magazine. So can it be that the justifiably famous humor of the Jewish people is related to the Yiddish language? More than other cultural traditions? Well, it's more than I know, but if you've got an opinion on this, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We're, we're keen to get some feedback on this. You know, before we leave this topic, we have to do at least one more joke, I think. Well, related to talking previously about um, the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls and Jewish literature in general, we've often repeated on this program the great wisecrack that one has to assume that the biblical texts have been altered over the centuries because you've got, what, 39 books and not a single joke? I believe George Bernard Shaw once said that the lack of humor in the Bible was the most singular aspect of world literature. Anyway, calling Dr. Andy, we need your help for these topics. (laughs) If you're listening, give us a call. And, you know, just to illustrate all this, let's go to the, I guess it's the book and the website and I think a whole series of videos titled Old Jews Telling Jokes. So it's Friday night in the synagogue, and during the course of the service, the rabbi standing at the pulpit is looking out over the back of the congregation, and in the very back he sees a young man who's got his head in his hands for the entire service. He's very concerned about this, so after the service is over, he goes to the back and he recognizes the young man. He says, Gerald, what seems to be the matter? You seem to be absolutely miserable. He says, Rabbi, I don't know what I'm going to do. He says, I'm 29 years old, and every time I bring a girl home, my mother don't like her. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. So the rabbi thinks for a minute. He pulls on his beard, and he puts his hand on Gerald's shoulder. He says, Gerald, I have an idea. He says, you need to find a woman who looks like your mother, who talks like your mother, who dresses like your mother. This has got to be okay. Okay. Gerald looks up. He's got, finally got hope for the first time in months. He says, Rabbi, you're a genius. I'm going to try that. Okay. A few weeks later, back in the service on Friday night, Rabbi's again looking around at the congregation. Okay. And in the back, he sees Gerald with his head in his hands, and he looks all disheveled and worse than ever. After the service, he goes down. Gerald, what happened? He says, Rabbi, I did exactly what you said. He said, I found a woman who looks like my mother. She talks like my mother. She dresses like my mother. She even cooks like my mother. So the rabbi says, so what's wrong? My father don't like her. (laughs) All right, it's funny. Is it the Jewish tradition or is it the Yiddish language? You make the call. All right, let's talk about uh, something else the bee has done. The McClatchy organization we've complimented for good reason in the past, and they're giving us more good reason in the present. Uh, 
Peace in the Sunday Bee, May 19th. Page one, titled Corrosion, Plagues, New Bridge. Piece by Charles Piller, based on some leaked information that raises some questions about whether the new Bay Bridge, the new span connecting Yerba Buena Island to Oakland, is safe. Apparently, various steel tendons that leak together chunks of concrete uh, have to be grouted within 10 days, but unfortunately, design or construction errors cause grouting delays of up to nearly 17 months and a concomitant exposure to water that caused corrosion. The key findings in the piece? Well, there's the quake risk. Construction problems cause corrosion of internal steel tendons in the Skyway, and a major quake could trip cripple sections of the span, according to experts. Construction problems. Caltrans and the span's builders violated accepted techniques to prevent corrosion. Also, warnings were in vain. Caltrans inspectors warned about water leaks and corrosion, but construction managers did not examine problems until more than two years had passed. Also, faulty testing. A Caltrans corrosion study deemed the tendon problems minor, but top metallurgists said errors rendered the study's findings meaningless. To quote from the article, Experts said that while a total collapse seemed unlikely, if Caltrans miscalculated corrosion estimates, a major quake could cripple sections of the Skyway. The span's construction violated universally accepted techniques meant to prevent corrosion, they said, and could result in costly inspection and maintenance headaches nearly unheard of for similar modern bridges. And apparently a bridge collapsing due to tendon corrosion is not just a theoretical matter. In fact, in 1990 and the year 2000, major Florida bridges failed due to such corrosion. It's a long piece. We don't have time to go into it today, but this certainly is... Uh, Worth taking a look at. This bridge is apparently the state of California's most expensive public works project in our state's history. You'd think if we're throwing that kind of dough at it, we'd be doing it right, wouldn't you? Might be a good time to remember that you can also get to San Francisco by going over the Golden Gate, San Mateo, and Dumbarton bridges. And you know, sometimes in this program we get tired of the grim nature of the stories which dominate the news. So once in a while, we just like to enjoy a, a turn into the whimsicals. I feel like doing that today. Let's, let's take a little uh, detour, as it were, into the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series. I have in my hand the 22nd edition titled Endlessly Engrossing. I believe we've had Uncle John Javna on this program, what, three times, Mr. McMillan? I believe so. Let's meander through some miscellaneous items here from the Bathroom Readers series, such as a chapter titled, Odd Books. And uh, among the titles of Odd Books is, Bombproof Your Horse. We presume this was written for members of the old cavalry, but we don't really know. Nor are we sure who'd want to pick up a copy of Who's Who in Barbed Wire, of course, if you're contemplating uh, writing a how-to-write book, you may want to pick up a copy of How to Write, a how-to-write book. And we figure that you probably must have aspirations to be an admiral if, uh, if you've got among your volumes in the house How to Save a Big Ship from Sinking 
even though it was torpedoed. Let's face it, you know, unless you're an admiral, that's just not going to come up all that often. Yoga for Cats, that has to be a curious book. And how about a do-it-yourself submachine gun? Of course, unfortunately, that backs us right into today's headlines, doesn't it? As you may have noted, dear listener, apparently libertarian activist Cody Wilson last week fired a plastic gun created entirely by a 3D printer. Then he thoughtfully uploaded blueprints onto the internet. So those blueprints can now be downloaded by any mental patient, felon, or terrorist with a 3D printer. And indeed, apparently within 48 hours, the Liberator blueprints were downloaded 100,000 times and shared around the web. Now, apparently these don't make very good guns. They're not going to stand up to a, a lot of shooting being made entirely of plastic. They do have the advantage of being able to be snuck onto an aircraft, if that's an advantage, which we're not thinking that it is. Anyway, let's get out of that and back into Uncle John's. All right, how much time we got, Mr. McMillan? All right, in the minutes we have left, let's let's do some science slash, well, actually, not science at all. In fact, I was going to say science slash medicine, but it's really neither. There's a big controversy brewing. We've talked about it before, and we're going to talk about it again, about the DSM, better known as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Known as The Economist, a book with the title Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, does not sound destined to become a bestseller, particularly at $199 a pop. But DSM-5, as it is known for short, is almost certain to become one. Its predecessor, DSM-4, published in 1994, has sold more than one million copies. Note of the magazine, the reason? Well... The DSM has become the global standard for the description of mental illness. Indeed, it's treated by many people as less a medical handbook and more as holy writ. Insurers use it to decide whether or not to cover ailments. The problem is, I see it, is that um, people will believe that these descriptive diagnoses are real. They're sort of real, but a lot of times they're just approximations. They are certainly not as precise as we would all like them to be. Noted New Scientist magazine back in 1980 when DSM-3 was published, there was great optimism that its provision of a reasonably reliable diagnostic system would rapidly lead to a revolution in psychiatric research. In one way, this did indeed happen, but in another way, it did not. Psychiatric research quickly went from stepchild to darling. In most medical schools, it is now just behind internal medicine in attracting external funding. The happy result? An explosive advance in basic neuroscience. Disappointingly, however, notes the magazine, 30 years of advancing knowledge has no impact whatsoever on psychiatric diagnosis or treatment. Magazine notes, we will probably soon have accurate tests for Alzheimer's disease, but there's nothing in the pipeline for any other psychiatric disorder, and it may take decades before such tests materialize. It was hoped that DSM-5 would include biological markers that might reflect past research and promote future research. Notes New Scientist, that was a premature and unrealizable ambition. 
And it has become increasingly clear that DSM's descriptive system may be a research dead end. Its syndromes are too diverse and overlapping to be good research targets. April 29th of this year, Thomas Insel, director of the world's biggest funding agency for research into mental illness, advocated a major shift away from categorizing psychiatric disorders according to a person's symptoms. This approach has given us labels like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression. Incel, who heads the U.S. National Institute of Mental Health, wants mental disorders to be diagnosed more objectively using a combination of genetics, brain scans that show abnormal patterns of activity, and cognitive testing. Well, as we reported in this program some time back, brain scans may not be all they're cracked up to be. This was illustrated by a case of a dead salmon (laughs) being stuck into one of these functional MRI machines and showing readings. And in closing, you want to note there's a new critical book out titled The Book of Woe, The DSM and the Unmasking of Psychiatry. Author Gary Greenberg has a fresh, funny voice to the chorus lined up to belittle psychiatry's 1,000-page taxonomy. Review in Nature magazine said, Greenberg trots out some gruesome, sausage-making stories about how the American Psychiatric Association, which produces the DSM and profits greatly from its sales, goes about codifying disorders based merely on clusters of symptoms. The New Republic said he's not even-handed in recounting all this, but he's better than any other critic I've seen in explaining how a group of smart, seasoned people were lured by the love of money and power into persuading themselves that they were proceeding scientifically on a project that was instead built on fiction. And although we'd like to delve into this a little more, we're flat out of time. You may be right. I may be crazy. Our thanks to Elena Newport for rejoining us, and hopefully Pamela Taylor will give us a report on the Australian annular eclipse on next week's program, at which time hopefully we will be joined by Sylvester Stallone or a reasonable facsimile thereof. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week. Yes.